Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Strange Familiars. You know the question, Allison. Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Yeah. Yeah. You know the question. I know the question. I don't have to ask it anymore. Hope everybody out there is doing well. Hey, Tim. Yeah. What's the secret of comedy? Timing. (laughs) (laughs) That's a nod to an old friend of ours, Jeff. I don't know if it was his favorite joke, but he certainly told it over and over and over again to the point where I associate that joke with him. Yeah, it, in that, the time we spent together with Jeff, we, he lived down the street from us when we lived in Glen Rock, Pennsylvania. And we spent a lot of time, he'd come over two or three nights a week and mm-hmm. hang out. We'd play games or we watched The Simpsons a lot, I mm-hmm. remember. Yeah, it was good memories of Jeff. And yes, that was a, one of his favorite jokes. Not that I'm not sad and I am kind of like, yeah, trying to get through this, but at the same time, like he was a hilarious person who really brought a lot of. I, he would hate if I said light, and I kind of hate saying light, but he did. Or maybe um, levity. Yeah, he was a good guy. Yeah, we'll miss Jeff. Yeah, so Jeff, this this episode is dedicated to Jeff. Don't even know if he listened, but mm-hmm. we'll some some of his him. friends might. So yeah, we're mm-hmm. thinking of all of them too. We've got some other folks in the Strange Familiars family that are going through some health issues right now. So want to tell them we're thinking about them. You know who you are. On tonight's episode, I will be talking to Maxim W. Furick, author of Shepton, The Myth, Miracle, and Music. If you don't know this story, it's about a 
mining disaster. Cue the Bee Gees, Allison. I know. Does it take place in New York? No, it's Pennsylvania. Oh, because yeah, if, if we had had the rights to New York mining disaster, I, I really would have liked to play that. Sure. One of my favorite songs. Yeah, I love that song too. But this was in Home Pennsylvania. Town? Yeah, not not too far from uh, Centralia. From Centralia, yeah. Oh, yeah. Interesting. I, I think Maxim said like twenty miles from Centralia. It's a harrowing story. These guys get trapped in this mine for, I think, it's like two weeks. Does it end well, or we don't? You don't want to say yet. It ends well for two of them. Okay. You have this story of men getting trapped in the mine and getting rescued. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing story by itself. But then there's all this weird kind of paranormal stuff that fits into it. They saw entities down there. I wanted to ask you, like, how different from a sensory? What are they called? Deprivation. Um, deprivation tank. How different is a sensory deprivation tank from being trapped in a mine? I mean, beyond like the panic and the... Yeah, well, you know, certainly when psychologists look at this and stuff, there's different takes on it, whether they really experience this stuff or not. Both of those miners insist, like completely insisted that we weren't hallucinating, this happened. If they were hallucinating, most of what they were hallucinating was shared hallucinations. They agreed on what they saw. Wow including a pretty amazing apparition that appeared down there. So we're going to talk to Maxman in a bit. Before we talk to him, let's just thank our patrons. Thank you, patrons. Thank you so much for your help. We could not do Strange Familiars without you. At this point, we really couldn't make the podcast without our patrons. So you guys mean everything to us. You're the reason why Strange Familiars exists. If you'd like to help us continue to make Strange Familiars and get extra content besides, you can become a patron at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. There's different tiers of support there. All of our tiers, no matter what, get commercial-free episodes of the weekly shows, plus two full exclusive episodes of Strange Familiars every month, just for our patrons. Go ahead to patreon.com slash strangefamiliars and check out the different options there. All right, let's go ahead and talk with Maxim. I'd like to welcome Maxim Furick to the show. How are you doing tonight, Maxim? Uh, really good, Tim, and thank you so much for this opportunity to address your audience and to talk about the uh, Shepton mining disaster. I'm really excited to be able to have this conversation with you tonight. Well, I was telling you earlier, <laughs> I didn't know that I was going to have time to read this before we talk. I'd like to read the books before I talk <laughs> to any authors, but sometimes I just, I, I really don't have time. But I sat down with it today. I thought, well, I'll read a little bit of it. And I just sat there and read the whole thing, cover to cover. <laughs> it is such an amazing story, and I'm excited for the, the listeners to get to hear a little bit about the story. But before we do that, let's hear a little bit about you. Did you start out as a rock journalist? Right, yeah. and um, when people ask me, what does that mean? Uh, I'm a rock journalist. I take a look at the culture of rock and roll, uh, I would say through a sociological lens, you know, try to make some sense of it, to validate it, because, you know, I feel that music has always been important, has been uh, transcendent for us, you know, uh, with certainly with civil rights and uh, the v- Vietnam movement and just so many other movements. So, you know, you could uh, equate to music. So I wrote a book about the Jordan Brothers. They were a, a legendary band from uh, Frackville, Pennsylvania. That was really successful. And I wrote a book on Generation X, the uh, demographic that was born between 1965 and 1978. 
Again, that had a whole lot of, yeah, okay, that had a lot of music and especially grunge music from the Pacific Northwest, you know, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Mm -hmm. you know, all those groups. And uh, there tended to be a difference in Gen X than there was with my group, the Baby Boomers. And uh, there was, seemed to be a bit of despondency with Gen X. And it was different because, you know, uh, Baby Boomers had pretty much intact family structures dads who worked, mom that stayed home and nurtured us, you know, and, and this empowerment. There were a lot of us, and there was all this, this empowerment, this feeling that we were going to help to make the world a better place. I mean, a lot of us believe that. With Gen X, you didn't have that. You had some pessimism. You had uh, new demographic groups, latchkey kids raising themselves because mom and dad were out, you know, trying to survive and, and, and work and make a buck, You or were divorced, you know, single parents, Mm-hmm. Uh, raising raising kids, and you also had another interesting demographic group, and that was grandparents raising kids, and that was because the parents were incarcerated or you know addic- addicted to drugs, and we had that. So when uh, I was working on uh, my uh, current book um, that was just published in 2021, but somebody else's dream. Dakota, the boys, and Timothy, and I was just writing a book that was going to be a rock. Uh, mythology about the song Timothy, and Timothy was banned by major radio stations because of inappropriate content, and that was specifically cannibalism. So the song Timothy, that was about cannibalism in a mine shaft, many people felt was about that felt that it directly paralleled what happened in 1963 in Shepton. So I started to write this story, uh, connecting the dots. But what happened was. Another story unfolded, and I realized that these miners saw things down there, you know, humanoid creatures, uh, you know, apparitions, golden cities, a whole lot of things. And the story was a lot bigger than what I had anticipated, what I was researching, and that led to my 2016 book, Shepton, the Myth, Miracle, and Music, and uh, and to tonight's interview. So uh, it was just amazing how those doors opened for me unexpectedly. I, you know, I went looking for something, but I found something different. So, you know, pretty amazing. I'm glad you documented the story of the mine. It's so incredible. You could take all the supernatural stuff out of the story and still have a fantastic story. And you you add the supernatural stuff in and it, you know, it's just layers and layers of stuff that happened around this. Can we just kind of lay out what happened at Shepton, just the basics? Sure. In 1963, three guys were working at a uh, uh, this in Oneida, Pennsylvania. They were working at the number two slope, and there was a cave-in, and uh, they were trapped for two weeks. It became an international story, and they never found the third third guy. And there were allegations of cannibalism. So the thing became bizarre immediately. The news reporters called it the Shepton disaster when actually it was taking place in, in Oneida. So that was the first thing that was just very weird, you know, mm-hmm. this, uh, this high strangeness of Shepton. So that was the first thing. But the allegations of cannibalism and then all the other things. So there were just a whole lot of things that happened almost at the same time uh, at this uh, disaster. It was pretty bizarre. It was just unique, not for the number of people that died, but just for all of the strangeness that surrounded it. And still we're trying to figure out, you know, trying to name things, trying to put them into slots and Mm -hmm. figure out what exactly happened. They're working a, it was essentially an independent mine operation. In fact, one of the guys who was trapped was one of the owners of the mine, wasn't he? 
Well, no, Louis Bovey was, was uh, one of the workers there. He was the one who, who they, they never found. But uh, Dave Fallon and Hank Throne were the workers. They were the ones who were rescued. And Hank Fallon, he was, uh, or Dave Fallon, rather, was 58 years old. He was a part owner of this independent mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, what they would do is after the mining companies got, had mined out the mining operation, a lot of these independent miners would go in there and they would work in the back and they would rob the pillars. Now, the pillars were these pillars of coal that held up the structure, but they would start in the back and take out those pillars and then go to the next one. So, you know, doing it carefully safely so that they could get out, you know, without a cave-in. The experts believe that what happened at Shepton was that they were robbing those pillars and they paid the price. The, uh, the, there was a massive mine cave-in and it happened immediately in the, the morning of August of 1963. They uh, loaded a bucket of coal, they sent it to the top and then they were going to be tipped up and they were sending the empty cart back to be filled and that's when the mine cave-in started. Just a mountain of stone and rock and coal came down on, on the miners. They were trapped 330 feet underground. Wow. That's a nightmare. That is just a nightmare. And there's various estimates on the size of the the chamber they were trapped in, but it was not big at all. No. A lot of the places they had to crawl on hands and knees like, like a dog, and then other places they could actually stand up. But the uh, size of the area was estimated to be maybe as big as a football field, but in varying uh, sizes. You know, again, some places they had to crawl and other places they were able to walk. But it was pitch black and they were sucking in the coal dust. It was uh, in the 50s. There was a constant 50-some degree temperature Mm -hmm. down there, damp. And then they kept on having the rushes. These are additional minefalls, additional um, cave-ins that kept on happening. So the whole configuration of that area that they were in kept on changing. It wasn't the same thing. So uh, it was uh, it was horrific. They were traumatized. I, I can't imagine what they experienced. But when I wrote Shepton, uh, the Shepton mythology, I tried to write it through a psychological lens. You know, what would it feel like to be down there with no hope of, of being rescued, no optimism, just the dread that you're down there trapped, uh, you know, and uh, with horrific conditions. And, you know, and a lot of us, uh, you know, uh, I think for a lot of us, uh, claustrophobia is probably one of the most challenging things that a human being could has, has to deal with. Sure. And, uh, and, and, and that's what they had down there. It was amazing that they were able to survive on so many levels, you know, that's that, that in itself is, I think is a miracle. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, again, what a story and their lights went out. What was it like 30 minutes after the collapse? Yeah. Uh, one by one. And then even the, their, uh, wristwatches that, uh, would illuminate in the dark, even that started to go out too. So, uh, at some point they had nothing, just it was pitch black before they were rescued. How many days did they spend underground? Yeah, they were down there for uh, something like two weeks. Oh my God! Uh, before before they were rescued, you know. And again, the 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 world. This was international news. There mm-hmm. were uh, newspaper reporters, journalists from uh, uh, the United Kingdom and Germany and Japan, and they were watching this. And this was a a story that had international appeal. And I've written numerous times that there was a sort of a preface to the book and. 
if I could. The August 13, 1963 Shepton Mining Disaster has been called a continuous collective hallucination, an out-of-body experience, a miracle by Pope John XXIII, and proof of life after death. Fate magazine describes Shepton as unmatched in the annals of psychic research, and the Associated Press listed Shepton as one of the year's most significant news stories. Now, that was 1963, and the only news story that surpassed Shepton was later on in November of 63, and that's when our President John Kennedy was assassinated. And that was another tragedy. Mm-hmm. There's a uh, correlation between Kennedy and the Shepton narrative, too, that is really interesting that uh, I think a lot of people don't know, know about. Right. Do you want to give it away? or is it? Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I would like to. Um, yeah. First of all, I think if you're a Roman Catholic, you're probably aware of Pope John Twenty-Third and his miracles and Vatican II and a lot of the things that he did. And that's fine. But I go around and do these presentations, and there's a lot of people that don't know of him, and they don't know anything about Roman Catholicism. But the one thing I point out is Pope John Twenty-Third was there in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that is when we came very close to either a nuclear incident or World War III. Sure. I mean, yeah. we came very close. Mm-hmm. Now, the players there were President John Kennedy, Fidel Castro of Cuba, and um, Nikita Khrushchev of, of the Soviet Union. Pope John Twenty-Third. one of the things that he did was he wanted to have a rapport. He wanted to have relations with the communists and the Marxists. And he believed that there needed to be a dialogue. So by articulating that, he gained the respect of you know, the communists in, in Soviet Union and in Cuba. So during this crisis, Pope John XXIII, it is believed and it's documented that he was able to go and have audience with Castro and Khrushchev to have them toned down and also with President Kennedy. So we don't know exactly what happened behind closed doors. There was probably some sort of a deal that was made that the Soviet Union agreed to back down, to not have missiles there in Cuba. And I don't know what we gave up. I mean, I've read about this extensively, but mm-hmm. I'm sure that there was something that, you know, that we don't know about. But Pope John Twenty-Third was instrumental in that. So he becomes larger than life when you take a look at his life experience. The other thing, liberal Catholics really loved Pope John Twenty-Third. They call him the good pope because he was liberal, because he uh, brought about Vatican II. And Vatican II was a, uh, an attempt to modernize the church and uh, bring it into the, uh, into the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And he did that by doing things like, uh, you know, just g- giving uh, more respect to, uh, to women, to other religions, people that are, that are Jews and Muslims. And also with the Vatican II, he allowed Mass to be said in languages other than Latin. Right. And for liberal Catholics, this was just a wonderful progressive thing. But for the traditionalists, I mean, they disliked him. They hated what he did. And mm-hmm. so, you know, Pope John Twenty-Third. I mean, you know, on, on the one hand, he's, you know, a, just a wonderful, you know, innovator and forward thinker. But a lot, uh, there was uh, plenty of people, too, that didn't like what he did. And also, to this day, there are, you know, uh, Catholics that refuse to go along with Vatican, too. Yeah. Know? So yeah. Um, he's controversial as well as progressive. We'll talk about how he works into the mind disaster. It's a very, very interesting part of the story. Absolutely, yeah. As we go on. So did you grow up in Pennsylvania? 
Yes, I'm originally from Berwick, Pennsylvania. That's in Columbia County. And that's about, let me say, I would say about 30, maybe uh, 45 minutes from Shepton. You know, Shepton okay. is just outside of Hazleton. Mm-hmm. So uh, we knew of this. You know, we, uh, you know, I was just a, just a kid at the time. I was, I was in high school. I think it was uh, 16 when that happened. And uh, it was a big story. Some of my friends went over there. I never did. But during this Shepton drama, there were a couple of thousand people there, a National Guard, Salvation Army, military, state troopers, uh, just uh, tons of people, uh, tons of uh, cameramen. You know, this was a big media event. There were also some interesting people like people that uh, portrayed themselves as doctors. They were there handing out protein bars and things. This is back in 63. And they were not doctors. They were, I don't know, they were just like sort of con artists, you know, trying to, I don't know, work the crowds. But, you know, there was a lot of things happening there. There were military people who were experts in the bomb shelters. You know, how long could a person survive in a bomb shelter? But, you know, being in a bomb shelter with food and supplies and a bunk and, you know, and and, uh, maybe some kind of some level of warmth and comfort is different than being trapped in a mine 330 feet below, you know, in 50 some degree temperatures with dampness and, uh, you know, and and coal dust and all that. So uh, they were monitoring these guys and taking notes. So in a sense, the Shepton miners that were trapped were sort of like guinea pigs. I mean, they were being watched and their movements were being, uh, you know, uh, documented and, uh, you know, sort of scientifically. So it's kind of interesting, the number of of different diverse groups that were there at that Shepton disaster site. After so many days of them being trapped, a lot of people had given up hope on them being alive, but it was Felon's brother, right, who who insisted that they they try to rescue him. Right, and they were estranged, and maybe this was a way for the brother to go and um, bring it full circle and atone or whatever. I mean, who knows, but typically in mine disasters, what they would do is they would, you know, it was just difficult to go down there. It was expensive to try to uh, rescue the the miners, you know, the trapped miners, Mm -hmm. and also it was dangerous. Typically, they would just bulldoze that mining site and maybe put a concrete pad on it, and the uh, Catholic priest would come. You know, the, the majority of them were Catholics, the miners, and uh, the priest would give the last rites of absolution. So the mining site, the disaster site, would just become a uh, a tribute, a memorial to the to the miners. But in this case, uh, Felon's brother you know, sort of demanded that they go and make it a rescue operation. And after uh, talking to some of the people, they decided that they would do that. And it, they couldn't go down the borehole because that was just filled with uh, rock and debris and timbers. So they had to find another way to get down to the miners. They felt if they went down through the borehole, that would take them just too many days and the miners would die. So the plan was to go and go through the side and do a slant borehole to try to try to find them. And they thought, well, if they're going to be any place, they're going to be here. And so that's that was what the plan was. The plan was to go and rescue the miners. There was no money in the coffers of the uh, Shepton Oneida uh, mine number two. And that was uh, Davy Felon's independent mine. So they had to get monies from the state. And I believe, I, and again, I, it's in my book, but I think it was like the number was $60,000 that uh, the state needed to, to kick in to get this thing started or completed. But anyway, they did. And it led to just a miraculous uh, rescue attempt and an innovative 
technique, too. It was Felon's brother who told him where to drill. They thought that if they were going to be any place, they would be in a monkey shaft. And the monkey shaft was a little place where they would keep food and water and tools. Mm-hmm. And they thought that during the cave and that possibly the, uh, the miners would jump into the monkey shaft. And if they were still alive, that's where they would be. So that's where they shot for. What happened was they had a drill. And this is, I mean, there's a number of things. I mean, they're just bizarre. They're peculiar. I mean, you could put a name for it, but I I think they're all like little miracles, you know, in this huge uh, uh, Shepton miracle. Uh, They had a drill, and uh, the drilling rig was going towards the site that they identified to drill to get to the monkey shaft. And the drill broke down before they got to that site. And it was quite a ways away. So they decided to dig down anyway. And they were able to go and reach the miners through that. Now, that was just a bizarre occurrence. It never should have happened like that, but it did. So that's another part of this Shefton mythology that just defies any kind of logic or or anything, you know. So they get a little hole drilled down to them. What was it, six inches or something that they could get get them food and water? Which, by the way, they had been drinking what sulfur water from from the mine. It was sulfur water, oh. yeah. There was there was sulfur water there. They were uh, eating on timber, you know, just to fill their stomach. But I believe, I mean, it's 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 that during the first several days, that they were traumatized. Mm-hmm. They were shocked that they were not hungry they might have been thirsty but they just weren't hungry i mean i think that was the furthest thing from the mind i just think that they were just in total turmoil and uh distress and you know trying to find their center and uh, trying to do what they could to uh, you know get through this ordeal mm-hmm. felon being the older guy he knew that they were uh, 330 feet down and he sort of estimated when they would be able to go and rescue him. And one thing that happened after he was rescued, and not to give it away, but yeah, they were re- the two guys were rescued. Mm-hmm. But he, he uh, was cr- very critical of the uh, rescue team for not getting them out earlier. So he became the pariah mm-hmm. and he had to walk that back. Because now the thing about Felon, they fell in that he was an old time miner, he was 58 years old. He had character and spunk. He was like the coal region's John Wayne. But he told it like, he said it like it was. I mean, if, he, if something was on his mind, he would say it. And uh, the fact that he thought that they took too long to rescue him was one of the things that he talked about and was angry about, and it came back on him. So uh, he had to sort of apologize for that. Mm-hmm. So eventually, after they dig this, this small borehole, which even that must have been an incredible relief to these guys, you know, just some kind of contact with the world. There's somebody knows you're down there. Right. So that borehole, they were able to give them warm liquids, mm-hmm. give them soup, and give them uh, a salve for their, for their uh, hands and, uh, you know, the bruises because they were all cut up from the rock and everything. There were military psychologists that talked to them, tried, tried to keep them uh, calm and, uh, you know, give them messages of hope that they were going to be rescued. But, you know, the, the thing of it is, even though there was a borehole, you know, the next couple of steps were very precarious because mm-hmm. when they were going to drill a, a bigger borehole, they had to do this in such a way that it wouldn't bring down, you know, that uh, part of the, the, the mine shaft and the roof and uh, another cave in. So, you know, all of this stuff is very, uh, you know, delicate. 
and dicey. And, you know, again, you're talking about going through 330 feet of rock and coal. One individual that played a part in this was Howard Hughes, and he was the billionaire from Houston, Texas. And Mm -hmm. he was able to fly up several tungsten drill bits by Navy uh, fighter jets, and they flew to uh, the Hazleton Airport. They used those to uh, drill through the rock and coal. So uh, he was one of the heroes of the Shefton mythology. One of the things that you talk about in the book, which, you know, just not knowing much about mine cave-ins and stuff, I didn't realize how much of a scare this was, was the fear of the mine filling up with water at any time. Yeah, all the time, yeah. And that and the rats, you know, they, uh, there were always rats around. And they a lot of times they would feed the rats because if the rats were around, you know, they knew that there wasn't any additional mine subsidences coming or water. Mm. And uh, the fear of uh, being flooded, like, for example, the Shepton Mining rescue technology was used in 2002 and 2010. I just want to talk about that briefly. Um, yeah, sure. In 2000, 2002, there were nine miners that were trapped at Kew Creek, Pennsylvania. And what happened was they were using outdated maps. They drilled into the, uh, the, the wall and all of this dirty water came in there. Nine miners are trapped and the water is going up higher and higher and higher. Their heads are above water and they realized that they had maybe one hour left to live. This is in Kew Creek, Pennsylvania, in southwestern PA, uh, south of Pittsburgh. All these guys started to write letters to their loved ones and put them in these bottles, you know, because oh, you know, they thought they were going to die. Yeah. Finally, after the, the water started to, sub- to subside, these guys were rescued by the same technique that was de- developed in Shepton, and that was a capsule that was developed. Uh, the same thing, and they were trapped there in Kukuk for 78 hours. The same thing happened again in 2010, and this was the infamous Chilean copper mine disaster. Uh, the 33 men were trapped for 69 days, and again, it was the Shepton mining the rescue technology that saved them. And what they did was, I mean, the original plan at Shefton was to use these uh, bullet-like capsules, and they were going to lower them to the slope's bottom. They were seven-and-a-half-foot cylinders. But at Shefton, they realized that the borehole, the Shefton borehole, was, wasn't smooth, and uh, it was just irregular. And they thought that the uh, if they tried to use that, that the uh, – miners would get trapped in the capsule. So they don't want to do that. So what they did was they had uh, parachute harnesses and the miners were greased up and they brought them, they rescued them with that. But the technology was used in, in Q Creek in Chile, which, um, you know, uh, which the one thing that sort of fascinates me and disturbs me is that very few people outside of the coal region realize that the Shepton technology did that. Now, if you were to go to Shepton and go to Schoolhouse Road, there's a nice plaque that was put up by the Pennsylvania. I guess it was the Historical Commission, and it attributes the Shepton rescue technology to, you know, Kew Creek and Chile. But few people outside of our area know that, and uh, I just think that's kind of sad because this is something that we should champion and we should, uh, you know, we need to be proud of what the mining technicians did in 63 mm-hmm. uh, that that was used elsewhere. So they were able to rescue two of the three. The third miner was never found. 
basically they said that he was on the other side of the mine when it came down and they they heard him for a little bit said it, you know he said his leg was broken or something and then that was yeah yeah that was it and, yeah. and that, yep yeah and i believe that what happened was that there was a mountain of rock and coal that just landed in between them i mean i really believe that they were separated felon and throne were separated from bova by this by mount this mountain again i don't know that's my conjecture right. but a lot of other people think that there was cannibalism yeah and back then in 63 they did and in and even today, there's people that still believe that. So I'm not exactly sure why. But so instead of the story dying in '63, it was resurrected in 1971 when the boys released Timothy. Mm-hmm. And so you have a pop song that eerily seems to parallel what happened in Shefton. So here we go again. You know, for some of those Shefton people that might have been traumatized for what happened or what they thought happened, it's happening again in a pop song. And as it turned out. Timothy was the highest charting rock song, you know, in northeastern and I believe north central Pennsylvania. So it was number 17 on the Billboard charts and it was huge and just fueled by that controversy, you know, by the yuck factor, by the censorship, you know, uh, radio stations like WABC that refused to play it because of inappropriate content. So, uh, you know, there you have it. You have a, a controversial song that uh, the college kids liked and when people started to listen to it listen to the lyrics and they would discuss this so uh timothy was on the stayed on the charts for quite a while and you know it was uh, the biggest thing that uh, the boys from wilkes ever um, experienced one other thing for your listeners in the area this thing is coming full circle in march march 30th of 2023 the boys who recorded Timothy will be inducted into the Central Pennsylvania Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And that's going to be on March 30th in Hershey, Pennsylvania at the Hershey Theater. And it's just amazing. And another oddity is that the boys are getting recognized not in Luzerne County and Lackawanna County, where they're from, but in uh, the Hershey area. And I'm not sure what county that is, but that's, you know, uh, a ways away from uh, from the boys' hometown, but yeah. Anyway, I mean, it's it's, it's wonderful news, and you know, I, I'm just so gratified that you know the boys are being recognized for their musical contribution, and maybe even cultural contribution. You know, I mean, the song just has deep roots. You know, with Shepton mm-hmm. and the coal regions. Did they ever admit that it was about Shepton? No, that's pretty. Uh, Jerry Ludzik, who was from uh, Jeddo, you know, there was a place outside of Hazel called. They called it Japan. It was named Japan Jeddo. And then after World War II, they just changed it to Jeddo. But Jerry believed that when Rupert Holmes wrote the song, and Rupert was 19 years old, he was working for Scepter. I think a lot of your listeners know the story, but Scepter Records had given the boys a two record deal. Mm-hmm. And the first record that they did was called These Days. And that, it was a nice song, but it bombed. It didn't go anyplace. So Rupert Holmes, who was working for Scepter, he decided to write a song that would be controversial and that would get the boys notoriety. He was hoping that the, that the boys would then get another, a record contract with another label. That was the plan. So he wrote the song about cannibalism in a mine shaft. It was called Timothy. So the song took off. Unfortunately, the song got the notoriety, not the boys. Mm. I mean, it became their bread and butter, and they traveled extensively with Timothy. And one of their claim to fame is that you know, very few people outside the area know about was the Sapsot Rock Festival. That was in 1971 in Grays Harbor County, Washington, 
there were 150,000 people there over four days. And this was the Pacific Northwest version of Woodstock. So they had mud and rain. They had drugs called stumblers. They were barbiturates that the kids were drinking, taking the stumblers with wine. And uh, there were a lot of overdoses there. But anyway, the boys opened up for Sapsot two days in a row. And that was sort of a, a pretty neat coup that they were able to go and orchestrate that. But anyway, the boys, like I said, initially, I was writing a book about the boys and Timothy and the connection to the Shepton Mine disaster. And that was going to be the book, just a rock mythology. But as I investigated and researched Shepton, I found out that Shepton had a lot more variables. There were a lot more uh, levels, mm-hmm. you know, uh, fascinating levels mm-hmm. in Shepton. Before we leave the cannibalism accusations, which, like you, I, I don't think they apply. I think it's, you know, it's, it's just to work people up, essentially. Yeah. But there was sort of old minor lore that you talk about in the book where they said when a cave-in would happen, they would they would just take the smallest guy. And... Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, the Chicago Daily News said that. They said that mining lore was that they would eat the, uh, the shortest guy. And in this, this case, it was Louis Boba. And when felon was confronted with that, he told the reporter, he said, only evil men would ask, ask such a question you mm-hmm. know, about cannibalism. So he mm-hmm. denied it. One thing that's interesting, though, um, I, I said that the uh, Shepton Mine t- Technology saved those guys, those uh, 33 men in Chile, the Chilean copper mine disaster. Mm-hmm. They were running out of food. They were trapped there for 69 days. They had daily rations, a little bit of tuna fish, a little bit of milk, and a cracker. And they knew that at a certain point, they were going to run out of food. There were several books written about the Chilean copper mine disaster. There was a movie called The 33, so it's been well documented. They wrote in in, uh, the one book that they talked about cannibalism. If they did run out of food, you know, there was that possibility that maybe they would have to resort to cannibalism just to survive. There was some dark gallows humor here. All of the guys were from Chile, except the one guy was from Uruguay. And according to the book, they said, if anybody's going to get it, it would be the guy from Uruguay. So that was the the gallows humor. But unfortunately, you know, cannibalism is part of the Shepton mythology. And then so is the miracle of Pope John Twenty-Third. So you have that grotesque with the miraculous. I mean, just like this, just this um, almost a psychedelic swirl of, Mm-hmm. things. I initially wanted to call the book The Shepton Convergence because there was a convergence of themes, you know, the cannibalism, the miracle, the technology, the rescue technology, the humanoid creatures, you know, the uh, you know, the golden cities, you know, all that. But I didn't think people would understand what convergence meant. Mm-hmm. And so I decided not to call it that. The title that speaks to me is The Shepton Mythology and that's on the back. But again, I had to go and describe things, and that's why the name of the book is Shepton, The Myth, Miracle, and Music. And I kind of wish that I would have just called it the Shepton Mythology, but I thought I had to explain <laughs> what it was to the, to the reader. So. But the book has just done so well, and uh, I've just had so many people just uh, thank me for writing this. I was doing a presentation at the Alster Hoot Library 
in Wilkes-Barre, and there was a guy there, an elderly gentleman, and he had a, a legal pad, and he's taking notes as I'm talking. So during the uh, the break, we had a chance to talk, and the guy was from Poland, and he said that when he was a young man, mining companies from Pennsylvania would come over to Poland and try to recruit these young guys to come to work in the coal mines. They would tell these guys that the streets of America were paved of in gold, <laughs> paved in gold. So that was the promise. So, you know, as it turned out, you know, these miners, and so many of them were from Poland and Italy and Slavic countries, and uh, they became more or less indentured servants. I mean, they were working for the man, and, you know, it was just tough to get out of there. You know, you mm-hmm. go to the company store, and uh, you were just indebted to the uh, the, the companies, the mine company. So uh, it was just a hard life. And then there was the good and the bad. You know, the good was that anthracite coal from northeastern Pennsylvania fueled the uh, industrial revolution. And, you know, we're so proud of that. And then after World War II, fewer and fewer young men wanted to work in the mines like their fathers did. It was just too dangerous. And it was just really hard to go and recruit people. So, you know, the mining died out quite a bit after World War II. How is your book received in the area? Like, so I'm, you know, I'm outside of the coal region in, in southern Pennsylvania here. And, you know, I'm reading this this amazing story, which is new to me, but I imagine it's more known in your area. Is it a taboo subject, I suppose, to talk about or, or people still uh, recovering? You mean, you mean the, 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 the cannibalism? The, the Shepton the, the... disaster in general. I mean, no, it's it's, you know, we've had. Other, you know, we had the Knox disaster, which has been called the Knox mine murders. But uh, this disaster was when the mine company drilled too close to the river, the Susquehanna River. Yeah, you talk about that in the book. It's horrifying. Horrifying. It was horrible. Yeah, horrible. But this, they call it the Knox mine murders because the company knew that they had to be like 29 feet. I forget what it was from the the river. And uh, they went right through that. And those guys died. And uh, that was a horrific thing. No, I think that a lot of us are celebrating the rich history of the coal region. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the coal region being a hundred mile stretch from Scranton down to Harrisburg and then a 30 mile thing. It was just rich in anthracite coal. And, you know, they had Phoebe Snow, who was this young lady that wore a white dress and she would ride on the train you know, to demonstrate that, you know, there's no soot, that she would stay, you know, uh, clean and white, you know, so oh, the okay. snow. So there were just amazing things that, you know, that happened. There was a Grammy winner. The woman was from Philadelphia and she did this play, almost like a, like a opera, a musical thing about the coal region about the flowers and about the miners and about the breaker boys and the whole, story of the coal region is just so phenomenal. I mean, breaker boys, little boys, kids that had to work. Uh, There was a kid that was five years old that was the head of the household. His father died. In order to stay in the company home, he had to work. And he Mm. would go down there and lead, five years old, lead the mule around. That was his job. So you had these kids that were breaker boys that were getting hurt. And the other thing, too, that I believe I have this in my book, but 
the treatment of children was horrendous in, in, in America, and there were rights for animals, you know, uh, legislative rights for animals that were passed, that were enacted before the rights for children. Mm. That is just amazing that wow. it played out played out like that. But the coal region just has so many interesting stories. And what I'm trying to do is, one, I want to document this, and I think the chef does that. And then the other thing, I, my new book is called Coal Region Hoodoo, Paranormal Tales from Inside the Pit. And I take Shepton and Centralia and Pope John the 23rd and St. Teresa of Avila and all these other themes in Shepton. I take them a little bit further. And I'm really excited about this book and the possibility to maybe, you know, do another uh, podcast interview with you. Oh, yeah, you will definitely be coming on for that. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm excited. It's being published by Beyond the Fray. Friends of ours. Friends of yours, yes, and I can't thank you enough. It looks like it's going to be out yeah, this month. You know, we're waiting uh, for the formatting and everything. Oh, fantastic. The, I didn't know it was coming that soon. That's fantastic. That's great. Yeah, yeah. So I'm excited. I mean, Yeah, me too. So Shepton, uh, like I said, I, was, I wanted to call it the convergence because all of, all of those themes. There is one chapter in my book. It's called Extrication. And what I wanted to do, I wanted to go and just read a bit from that, if I may. And this sure. is... Uh, chapter 10, and uh, it starts off with claustrophobia, and what happened was they took these two miners, and they had them go into these parachute harnesses. They were special uh, coveralls that were made out of parachute harnesses. They greased them up with axle grease, and then they pulled them up through the slope, and the uh, circumference of the borehole was only 17 and a half inches wide. Wow. So they had to put these gobs of the uh, axle grease on their clothing so that they would go up uh, the narrow structure. They took turns putting the grease on each other. The interesting thing is that Dave Fallon, the older guy, insisted that Throne be rescued first. Mm -hmm. He thought this would be easier because Throne was young and he was highly emotional, and Fallon didn't want him to be at the bottom, you know, languishing with his demon. So he wanted Throne to go up first. And they had to put their arms over their heads. They had helmets, and they had uh, microphones. So the chapter called Extrication, uh, there's a segment called Claustrophobia, and it goes like this. For some, claustrophobia is a condition considered worse than death. Slithering upwards through the borehole was, in many ways, a severe horror than being entombed in the cavern. Throne was petrified. The thick cable tightened and began to tug him upwards, slowly through the narrow opening. His arms stretched to a point of impossibility, and he feared that his limbs would be torn from their screaming sockets. He felt throbbing, continuous pain. His anterior shoulder and upper arm muscles burned in response to the maneuver. He struggled to slow down his heartbeat, to relax, but was unable to control the creature that snarled inside his chest and threatened to rupture his heart. As he gasped for breath, a dry heave lodged in his parched throat. He began to hyperventilate. His body whipped and twisted pretzel-like in slow motion as he was pulled upward. Throne's heart began to pound, his mind racing as the harness encircled him and slowly spun him around. A violent tug forced him sideways into the wall. The parched skin around his lips blanched in fear. His body shook uncontrollably. Throne tried to maintain control as a choking sense of terror, a dizzying nausea filled him. And then we go on and on. And with Throne, it took 15 minutes and 45 seconds for him to go from the bottom to the top. 
and it was a torment. When he was lifted to, lifted to the top, he passed out. Mm. Fallon, on the other hand, again, Fallon, the stoic, you know, uh, John Wayne type, he did this in eight minutes and 15 seconds, almost half the time. And came out singing. He came out singing. Amazing. She'll come around the mountain when she comes. Amazing. Uh, allegedly, they sent him some whiskey. And when they were rescued, two Navy, uh, Marine uh, helicopters were parked there. And they took them one by one to the Hazleton State Hospital. President John Kennedy sent a telegram to the survivors. And it said, I'm going to read it here. Congratulations. The stamina, courage, and spirit that you and your rescuers have exhibited in recent days have earned the admiration of all Americans. I wish to join with them in expressing my heartfelt good wishes for your speedy recovery. So that was, you know, we had the connection with John Kennedy, Mm -hmm. the Cuban Missile Crisis, and Pope John Twenty-Third. The interesting thing, when the miners went to the Hazleton State Hospital, thrown who was an atheist, saw the picture of Pope John the Twenty-Third, And Throne goes to Fallon, he goes, look, that's him. That's the stranger. That's the guy we saw down there in the pit. Right. Fallon, who was a devout Roman Catholic, he had seen all kinds of pictures of Pope John the Twenty-Third, but not Throne. So he saw that. The other thing that happened, before they went to the top, Fallon said this to Throne. He said, he said, Hank, keep your mouth shut. Don't tell them what we saw down there. Mm. They'll think we're crazy. Mm-hmm. But as soon as Hank Throne, 28 years old, went to the top, and they had all these paparazzi asking him questions. And I mean, it was the same in 63 as it is now in 2023. Throne, Hank Throne started to talk about the Pope, you know, seeing the stranger, talk about the humanoid creatures that they saw, the Golden City, the stairwells, and all of this other stuff that, you know, is so much a part of the Shefton mythology. Felon didn't want him to talk about it. Felon wanted him, them, him to just not talk about it, and mm-hmm. uh, he broke down, and the word was out. An amazing story. Uh, uh, I mean, it still is. And, yeah. you know, uh, They're down there in the dark, and they, they see several things. But let's, since we already talked about the Pope, let's start with the Pope. They see the Pope down there with them, you know, an apparition of the Pope, but they said he was there the whole time. Right. They said he was there the whole time just standing there, giving them a sign that they were going to be rescued, a sign of peace, a sign to keep them calm. What's interesting, there were two other, and I say alleged, two other alleged miracles performed by Pope John Twenty-Third. Those other two were uh, medical miracles. Uh, mm-hmm. They took place in Italy. People had, uh, the one uh, nun had uh, stomach cancer, and she saw the image of the Pope. Uh, in all three cases, the M.O., the modus operandi, was the same. The Pope was there in the corner, just standing there, not doing anything, not touching them, not singing, not speaking, but just his presence was there. And the uh, doctors in, in Rome believed that this was a medical miracle, what, mm-hmm. what he did there. When Pope John XXIII was canonized in 2014, Vatican scholars attributed Shepton as one of his miracles. Also... Father Joseph Mary, who is the chaplain for EWTN, Eternal Word Television Network, uh, the Catholic media conglomerate in in Alabama. Father Joseph Mary was there in 2014, and he attributed Shepton as one of the miracles, and he spoke about that, you know, um, extensively. They believe that the Pope was there. Now, again, we, we ask ourselves, what was this? 
I mean, was it a miracle? And when I wrote the, the Shefton book, that, I, that was my conclusion, that it was a miracle. Now I'm just wondering, I think it was a miracle, but there may be another name for it. Maybe guardian angel, maybe spirit guide, maybe, uh, you know, holy apparition. Mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure, but it was something that was good. And, you know, I believe that these miners were blessed and they were meant to be rescued. And the Pope and also the humanoids that they viewed, I believe that was part of that miracle to that apparition. Again, you know, we see things, you know, in the paranormal, we see things and we try to go and figure out what they are. And we try to name, you know, name, mm-hmm. put a name to them. But with Pope John the Twenty-Third, uh, it just seems to be uh, a miracle. And again, all three of his miracles happened after he died. At the point he appears in the mine, he's already passed. Yeah, he died in June. And uh, and Felon knew this. Yeah, Felon, Felon knew this. But yeah. he did not mention it to the other fellow he was trapped no, in. No, Hank Throne was young, and he was impetuous, and he was highly emotional. Mm-hmm. Felon wasn't like that. Felon was a hardcore miner. He had been mining since he was like 15 years old. So he was just tough. I mean, he was just what a hero for the coal region. I mean, what a great guy. And yeah, the more yeah. I researched this book, the more I respected him for his grit and his character and his candor mm-hmm. and his spirituality. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was he was a religious man. You know, uh, he, he believed he had a strong faith. I believe that got him through. We talk about in psychology, we talk about symbiosis, where you have maybe a, a parent and a child. And I think that there was a symbiotic relationship between felon and throne, you know, mm-hmm. the older felon, the younger throne. And they, uh, to keep warm, they uh, rubbed each other, you know, uh, to keep the circulation going. They would dig to rescue them, to, to get themselves out. They would tap to let the rescue team know where they were, and they would pray. So it was tap, dig, pray, tap, dig, pray. They had their own mantra. Mm-hmm. And they believed that they saw the humanoid creatures. They believed that they saw stairways leading to, to heaven. Uh, uh, this is in pitch uh, darkness. And they believe that those, their, those stairwells were, uh, that their ancestors and their family members were seated on those on those uh, stairs. Yeah, so I definitely want to co- cover that. I just want to hit, finish up with the Pope because it's so amazing. Felon didn't want him to panic, so he didn't tell him, like, this is the Pope, and he's passed away, and he's standing here next to us. That's what yeah. makes it so amazing when, uh, I'm sorry, I keep forgetting the second guy's name. It's Felon and... Yeah, Throne. Uh, Hank Throne. Throne. When Throne gets to the hospital and sees the picture of the Pope and recognizes him, not only did he not know he was a Pope, he didn't know he had passed away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. such yeah. an amazing thing. And for him to say, oh, that, yeah, that's the guy that was down there with us. They both yeah, saw yeah. him. It wasn't just like the Catholic saw him. They both saw yeah. him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when they were questioned, when they were interrogated, you know, interviewed separately, both Felon and Throne came up with similar stories, similar mm-hmm descriptions of all of the different aspects of, of Shepton. So that was pretty amazing. That yeah. Was, uh, and truly amazing. You mentioned that as I'm reading this, I'm familiar enough with the story of the Belva mine disaster because of these flannel clad entities have become quite a character on the podcast. We, we talk about them a lot. And at some point, someone pointed me to that, say, hey, you got to check out the Belva mine disaster in which a door, you know, these guys are trapped in the mine, a, a door in the mine basically opens up in the, in the wall of the mine. This guy dressed like a lumberjack steps out and yeah, yeah. tells them, don't worry, you're going to be rescued and walks mm-hmm. back through the door. A very similar thing happens with a door in the side of the mine at Shepton. 
Right. With the blue light, mm-hmm. John Giger has a thing called the third man theory, and uh, he talks about apparitions. He talks about t- during times of psychological stress, Arctic explorers, uh, Lindbergh flying across, uh, you know, transatlantic, his transatlantic flight to Paris, the Shefton disaster. Giger believes that, that, that there's apparitions that show up to give us courage and faith and strength that, you know, that, that we're going to be rescued, that things are going to turn out for us. Mm-hmm. And I believe, and I heard about this after the fact, after Shepton was published, but the description of what Pope John the 23rd actually is or represents, you know, just expanded a bit with John Giger's theory. So again, it's just another theory, another attempt to find meaning. And that's what we do as human beings. You know, we always, we have a search for meaning. And I love the uh, paranormal realm because that's what this is. I mean, we just try to put our heads together and figure out mm-hmm. what exactly this, this means. And I just think it's so fascinating. And, uh, you know, I'm just so thrilled and grateful to be a part of this, you know, this, this, this family, no. I guess, paranormal family. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing. Good people all around. Yeah. The door, when it opens in the mind, that's where they see the staircase leading to what seems to be heaven and the golden city. Right, exactly. Yeah. And Felon and Throne had already passed. I I never had a chance to interview them. Um, Felon, you know, again, he was 58 at the time of the mining disaster. He died at age 74, and Throne died at age 63. He was 28 during the Shepton disaster. But I had met this uh, gentleman that worked in finance, and he did some work with uh, Davy Felon. And he agreed to be interviewed, but he didn't want me to use his name, so he was mm-hmm. anonymous. But he would ask Davy, "Go, Davy, what about this cannibalism?" You know, and Davy said, "No, that never happened. That's not true. You know, it's just a horrible thing." And what about the ancestors? You know, family members sitting on the stairwell. And the story is well known because the Associated Press. I believe, might have had exclusive rights to the Shepton story. I think they paid Felon and Throne for maybe a one-year exclusive exclusivity uh, for the story. Mm-hmm. So the story is well-known, but the person from Hazleton that, uh, that I interviewed, he said that Felon talked about family members and ancestors being on the stairs, and uh, he recognized some of them, but others, although he didn't really recognize them by knowing them, he knew that they were part of his family. So that was just another aspect of the Shepton uh, narrative. Yeah. You know, in pitch black, yeah. pitch, pitch darkness. And at some point they start seeing these little short entities with lights and they start, they said they were crawling towards them, but the closer they got to them, the further they seemed away from them. Yeah. They went away. They, they saw that. And then they also saw uh, humanoid creatures and they both, uh, when they were interviewed, again, separately, they both had the same description. They said that these humanoids were built like football players. They, had, they were muscular. They had long black hair, and they had hair bands. They had sort of a, uh, a tan, uh, bronze complexion, pointed ears. They had, wore sandals. They looked sort of like, uh, like Egyptians. Uh, or Roman soldiers, and both Felon and Throne had similar descriptions. You know, it was a, a variation of the theme 
But it was just amazing that they were able to go and, you know, have the similar uh, descriptions. When they were interviewed by Dr. by uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she thought that there was really something profound here, you know, with, the, with their story. She wrote on death and dying. She uh, did a lot of psychological studies for uh, near-death experiences and stuff, right? Right, yeah. She was yeah. pretty, pretty impressive. <clears throat> she was a Swiss-American psychiatrist. And she pioneered uh, near-death studies. She authored that on death and dying, which looked at the five stages of grief, okay. which was really profound. I mm-hmm. mean, she, she was named one of the 100 most important thinkers of the 20th century and all that. But with death and dying, you know, a lot of people, when a loved one dies, you know, we express anger, and then we negotiate, we negotiate with God, you know, please, if you bring them back, I'll be good. Right. And then finally, we go through a process, and finally— and it takes longer for some of us, but we finally have that acceptance that my loved one has gone. And then you bring your own conclusion to that, you know, uh, whatever that means. You need, you need to have closure with that. But uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did that. Now, what happened was there was a newspaper guy from Shenandoah. His name was Ed Conrad, and he befriended Dave Fallon. He met him at a funeral befriended him. And what he did was he took Dave Fellon around and he had people interview them. They polygraphed him. They had, had his, uh, his, his narrative uh, notarized. And then what he did was he took him down to Headwater, Virginia to meet Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross believed that what they experienced was profound. Uh, she believed that they experienced life after death, and she was talking about specifically about Pope John the Twenty Third. And then the other thing is, she believed that the miners experienced an out-of-body experience. And I talk about that. I talk about Saint Teresa of Avila, who was a Spanish mystic, and Tr- Saint Teresa believed that through prayer and meditation. Uh, people could uh, experience uh, states of rapture and ecstasy and what she called flight of the soul, which was what the out-of-body experience that was experienced by Felon and Throne. Felon said that it happened to him twice, happened uh, once to Throne, but they were able to go and have this out-of-body experience where they went out of the mine and looked down and could see the rescue team and uh, and all the people, you know, the, the thousands of people. Amazing. Yeah, pretty amazing that this story is not just one of the paranormal, but one of the maybe the spiritual, the miraculous, the you know, I mean, the technological, the you know, the grotesque with the with the cannibalism. I mean, it just seems to be a little bit of a lot of uh, variables here. Yeah, and like I said, I think you take any one of those elements and have a book, you know, have a story at least, but they all come together in your book. I really, really enjoyed it. I told you earlier, like there are parts of it that I was tearing up, like the with these the emotion of these guys just trapped in that mine. And then you get to the paranormal stuff on top of it. It's such an incredible story. They always insisted, both of them insisted they were not hallucinating these events. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And when I wrote the book, I followed their words, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and I believe that now, you know, uh, you could say that they were hallucinating like a dual hallucination, you know, that they both experienced the same thing, or you could say it was a, a result of drinking the sulfur water, whatever. But I don't believe that. I believe that something happened. There's something profound. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there, there were, uh, you know, things that we really don't even know to this day. But it's too easy to go and use Occam's theory uh, or Occam's razor and discount the Shefton mythology. 
But I believe that what happened here is valid, and I think it's significant in the annals of parapsychology mm-hmm. and the paranormal. I mean, I think it's profound, and I think there's something else. I'm, I, I'm not exactly sure. A time warp, a time continuum, uh, something. I mean, something that caused a convergence of energies you know, at the same place at the same time. Mm-hmm. Again, uh, what that is, I don't know. I'll leave that to future researchers to label and find out. But the, the story is it gets so much bigger in the retelling. And again, I'm looking forward to co-region hoodoo because I, it takes uh, the Shepton mythology a step further. And also I, I write extensively about St. Teresa of Avila, mm-hmm. who is just such a fascinating character. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. She was a uh, 14th century Spanish mystic, and she was around during the Spanish Inquisition and the Protestant Reformation, and she became a devout Catholic, even though the Catholic Church was under attack. Mm-hmm. She was a, you know, a prolific writer. You know, she wrote numerous things and talked about this flight of the soul, that through prayer and meditation, we could reach altered states of rapture and ecstasy and where we could actually leave our body. And uh, there was several documented cases of levitation that she experienced that where the nuns had to hold her down. And what's interesting is when you study some of the uh, Indian uh, fakers, you know, these mystics are allegedly, they are able to levitate. So mm-hmm. uh, it's not just in, in Christianity, but it's in Hinduism and Again, it may be in other religions too, but it's uh, just another aspect of of Shepton that that is just just so uh, fascinating. And it seems like Dave Fellin took some mysteries to his grave. Yeah, and we don't know what they are. You know, Fellin was very forthcoming in talking about his experiences there and what he saw. He spoke his his mind. Uh, You know, he didn't hold back. But he did say that there was some things that he experienced that he's never going to talk about, and he did take those to his grave. Mm-hmm. We don't know what they were. I personally don't think that they were, you know, it had anything to do with cannibalism. But I don't know. It may be that maybe he saw things or maybe he was told things, and uh, maybe they were of such a, a spiritual, personal nature that it was just between him and perhaps uh, Pope John the 23rd. Yeah. Uh, I, again, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. But it's something that, that was uh, profound. Well, I will say that, and this, this comes from my experience as, you know, a paranormal researcher, whatever you want to call what I do. One of the questions I ask people, so I get called out on, on anything, any kind of call, whether it's Bigfoot, whatever, ghosts, UFOs. One of the things I ask these witnesses is, where is the buried treasure? And sometimes they will quite literally say, oh, yeah, there's a story of buried treasure down down the street. But by that, I mean, where are people digging into the ground around here? Where are there legends of people digging in the ground? It occurs so frequently. These things happen around mines, around quarries, around places where there's legendary you know, stories of people who have lost mines, lost mm-hmm. silver mines, this and that. Right. Mm-hmm. So this applies to the Shepton, the Myth, Miracle, and Music book, and to your forthcoming book, where people dig into the ground, weird stuff happens. I don't, I can't <laughs> tell you the connection, but you know, I don't know if there's a correlation, but I know <laughs> that it happens again and again. I ask these witnesses, and they they come up with these stories. Oh yeah, the, there's a story of buried treasure down the street. There's a there's a lost silver mine somewhere mm-hmm. around here. You know, like that. Mm-hmm. 
So there, there's something to do with digging in the ground and paranormal stuff. Yeah, incredible. And, you know, we always talk about uh, Gettysburg being so haunted with all the lost mm-hmm. souls there. And then, you know, but you could say the same thing about the coal region. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so many miners that died horrific deaths there. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah. so so you know there you know very few people talk about talk about that. You know the uh, you know the apparitions, the ghosts uh, in the in the in the in the coal region. I highly recommend this book. It's Shepton: The Myth, Miracle, and Music by Maxim W. Furick. Where can people find it? You could get it on Amazon.com. Or if you're looking for an autographed copy, you could uh, contact me through my website, which is www.maximfurek.com. That's M-A-X-I-M-F-U-R-E-K.com. And I'll put that in the show notes for people as well. And your new book is coming out when again? Very soon. Uh, yeah, it's, it's coming out in uh, this month. So oh, wow. we're waiting for it to be formatted and to be printed. So and I'm excited. But it's called Coal Region Hoodoo, Paranormal Tales from Inside the Pit. It all takes place in Pennsylvania and just some really uh, exciting and weird stuff, uh, including UFOs and Bigfoot and a lot of other things. I think it's going to go over big. I'm really excited about launching this and talking about it. So, um, Well, you'll come back to Strange Familiars for that? Absolutely, Tim. Yeah, I'd love to. And I really appreciate this opportunity. And, you know, I hope your listeners found this of interest and that they take a look at Shepton, the Shepton mythology. I think it's uh, worth uh, a look. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I really like this book. There were points in this book where I was, I guess because I'm claustrophobic a little bit. I mean, who isn't? I guess everybody's a little bit Nobody wants to be down in a mine. Yeah. But there are parts where I think Maxim really captured the emotion, like talking about their wives waiting on them. And it's a rough life. Mm -hmm. It's a very rough life being a a miner or the wife of a miner. Or a coal miner's daughter. I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed this book. And speaking of books, what have we for our curiosity of the week here but a stack of books, Allison? A stack of tiny books. These are from a series called The Little Leather Library. It is not... S&M books? No. (laughs) The Ballad of Reading Jail, Oscar Wilde, Vampire, and Other Verses by Rudyard Kipling, (laughs) Salome, also by Wilde. And A Dream of John Ball. By William Morris. By William Morris. So it's like a lot of my favorite turn-of-the-century... Folks. Folks. Who yeah. doesn't love Morris and Wilde and Kipling? These are neat little books. Wasn't Kipling like part of the OTO or something? Yeah, I believe he was. I believe he were. There you go, Octavian. Now you can buy that. <laughs> or Golden Dawn. Yeah, maybe I it was the Golden Dawn. They kind of blend together. Mm-hmm. Might have been Golden Dawn. So, when were these published? Maybe at the latest 20s or 30s. Yeah, we'll have to figure that out. They're, they have a really cool green leather covers, and they're they're tiny. They're like, oh, maybe two by three. There's a whole series of them, and I just picked out some. I saved, I bought doubles of Salome so we could keep one, and I saved one of the Rubiot because we collect Rubiot stuff. So, mm-hmm. But there are um, a lot of other classics, so if the, I can get more if there's a certain... Well, if people are looking for a certain... Yeah, a certain author or something, I could probably find it. From that time. From that time, yeah. Not going to be Stephen King. No, probably no, not. No H.P. Lovecraft, Little Leather Libraries. I don't think so. <laughs> More like classics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I will put an image of one or more of these in the show notes. And if you click on it, it'll take you to our Etsy shop where I think all of them will be listed. I think you can I can just choose which, you can one, choose you which one you want. I'll figure out how to do that. Did it before. We can do it again. Yes. We have the technology. Yes. While you're at Etsy, make sure to check out our other offerings, Strange Familiars t-shirts, original classic blue Awoken tree shirts along with Glow in the Dark. We got Strange Familiar stickers and patches there, artwork. You can buy originals of my artwork and prints, copies of my books. All of them are in stock right now. Allison has some antique photos up there and more. Our shop name is Lost Grave. If you type in Strange Familiars, you should see our stuff come up, though. Speaking of Etsy, Chad just added, I think, three knives with handles made from bone that we found at Devil's Hole. I believe it's Devil's Hole. He started to make a series of knives with bone handles from, you know, places we talk about on Strange Familiars. I think this first batch is from Devil's Hole, and that's in his Ruck Rabbit Outdoors shop. He's on Etsy as well. What kind of bones are they? I think it's like a leg bone from a deer, mm. I believe. Because I imagine like a bird leg would be a tiny little knife. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. No, this, yeah. I would like him to make a tiny little miniature, miniature little knife out of a bird bone. <laughs> I don't think that would be very sturdy at all. I mean, yeah, I guess only if you needed to, like, shank a wren or something. (laughs) (laughs) Bird bones being hollow. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. I was over at Riverbend Comics on Sunday, else. John and I... You're cooking something up. Oh, it's so much fun. We're working on a board game. It's a very Strange Familiar Z board game. I'm excited about this. I don't know how long it's going to take to come together. I will say this. We went from zero to playable game. We had so many ideas, and we were able to kind of hash them down and you know eliminate the things that wouldn't work. We went from a idea to a playable game pretty quickly, like in the course of a night, and we really kind of hammered it out. Of course, none of the artwork's done. You know, we're we're just basically, you know, doing what I could call a stick figure version of mm-hmm. the game, using pawns basically as pieces and a die we pulled from another game and playing cards that we can he puts stickers on that we can write on you know for the cards we need but it was fun it's gonna be a good game i think i think people are gonna like it so like i said i don't know how long it takes to make a game i'm gonna have to do a lot of artwork for it and you know i'm still writing the hermit's book and doing strange familiars and the flower path and everything else but it's definitely something we're gonna work towards getting out as soon as we can maybe uh i can get some other artists to help me with this and if it goes well It'll be expandable, so you can add other boards and other features to it. That's all I'm going to give away at this point, but uh, that'll be coming at some point. You know, we've talked to a gaming company. It seems like they're interested. Uh, We'll run a Kickstarter on it, and as long as it gets funded, it's a go. And talking to the gaming companies, a local gaming company, they said they don't think there's any reason it won't get funded. So in the future, there should be a, a... super fun board game that's uh, Strange Familiars adjacent, Strange Familiars related. So in the meantime, Riverbend Comics, riverbendcomics.com, all your comic needs. That Project Blue Book comic just dropped. And John makes sure to keep in a full selection of all the, the high strangeness type comic books, if it's about Bigfoot or UFOs or something. He yeah, he's a good paranormal and horror collection. Too. Yeah, he tries to get it in check out riverbendcomics.com. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back soon with more Strange Familiars. 
Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. Intro and background music is by Stone Breath. If you want to hear more or purchase music, you can go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com. Strange Familiars is on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars. We're on Instagram, at strangefamiliars, and you can find us on the web at strangefamiliars.com.
how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.